So we'll move on to that, and uh, Seth will come up and uh, read God's Word for us and prepare us uh, for the reading and the preaching of His Word. Thank you, Seth. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Uh, Let's uh, turn our attention now to God's Word. Our scripture reading this morning, first the Old Testament reading, is Isaiah chapter 8, 22 through 9, uh, verse 7. Let's give careful attention to this reading of God's Word. Then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan and Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. In our New Testament text, is John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, To them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray together now. 
Our gracious God and Father, we pray that you would open our hearts to receive your word, uh, that you would uh, do that work that you alone can do of planting the seed of your word in our hearts, that it might put down roots and bear fruit as we are united more and more to the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray you do this for us by your spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The sermon text this morning is the passage from Isaiah, Isaiah 8, 22 through 9, 7, which we just read. Um, brothers and sisters, as we start to look at the text, I want to begin with a, with a question, and that's, what is it that has uh, defined your, your year? What has dominated your year? Uh, this, this time of year, we often see magazines coming out, and they say, the news of the year in review, and they share with us the stories that have dominated the press and dominated uh, uh, public life this year. Um, we also take this time to write Christmas letters and, uh, and, and tell people the, the news of the year of our lives, the things that have dominated and defined our lives, the headlines of our year. And, and whatever these events have, have been, they, they lead to a certain response for us, whether these things were, were good things and they lead to a response of, of happiness for us, uh, or, or for many of us, if these things were challenging things, uh, difficult things, and they lead to, to feelings of uncertainty and, and anxiety and fear. Well, the text that we are looking at this morning here in Isaiah uh, speaks directly to this, dear ones. And it, it tells us this, that however hard or painful or, or even good an event in our lives uh, might have been this year, the defining and dominating event of our lives doesn't fall within the span of this year or any year of our lives. In fact, uh, the defining event of our lives is someone else's life. Uh, the, the defining event of, of my life is the life of someone who's so all-important that he is the defining reality of all history. That, that his life, all of history is the prelude to him or, or the postlude to him. It's all the forward or the, the afterward to him. And of course, we're talking about Christ. Christ, the center point on which all of history turns and on which our lives turn. That's the great defining event of, of this year and every year, that Christ has come uh, and that he's, that he's brought salvation to sinners. And, and the glorious good news of Christ's life, then, if that's the defining event of my life every year, then that, that produces a response in me, not of anxiety and fear, but of joy. A sturdy, solid joy. Jo John Piper calls Advent the dawning of indestructible joy. Because that's what we have. Well, when Christ comes, we, pl we place our trust in Him, and in the salvation He's brought, we are filled with, with that response. Not a cheap happiness, but an indestructible joy that can weather all those other events of our lives. That's the message of this text. It calls us to live in the light of Christ's kingdom. It says, you who have been living in the deep shadow of darkness, whose lives have been defined by and dominated by the darkness of sin and the judgment of God and exile and the shadow of death, light has come. Life and hope and joy and redemption and salvation have come in Christ. Well, if this is, if this is the great reality of our lives... 
And the response is to be, to be joy. It all sounds very good, but, but the response probably for many of us is, well, that sounds, it sounds good uh, to hear that. It sounds good to, to have that kind of, of, of sturdy, indestructible joy because I'm trusting in Christ and the salvation he's brought. But so much of the time, I'm not there. Well, how do we, how do we get there? Well, if we're going to see the, the glories of the light of Christ, then first we have to see something of the hideous terror of the darkness of life apart from Christ. And that's where this text, that's where this text begins here in chapter 8, verse 22, uh, with the deep darkness. That's our first heading. Darkness is a powerful image, right? What, what horror movie doesn't play into that? Uh, uh, what horror movie is full of sunshine and, uh, and the clear light of day? Now, we seem to instinctively associate darkness with with fear and with confusion and with with, uh, being vulnerable to attack and and with with death itself. You never picture the Grim Reaper clothed in green and yellow on a sunny afternoon. Uh, Darkness is a picture for us of fearfulness and death itself. And, and all this makes it a very powerful symbol. And Isaiah picks up on this here as he describes Israel's experience under God's judgment in the Old Testament. Now, I want to look at three aspects of this darkness together. Uh, first, it, this darkness symbolizes separation from God. Listen to verse 22 of chapter 8. Then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. That's a description of God's judgment on on Israel. He's saying, I'm going to send you away into exile. I'm going to drive you out of the promised land. And what's happening here is that Israel's replaying on a national level what happened to Adam and in the Garden of Eden. God God creates Adam to be his son, to be in fellowship and, and have 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 communion with him, and then Adam sins against God, and so God sends him out. Of the garden. He exiles him from the Garden of Eden out into the darkness of separation from God. And, and now Israel, on a national level, is, is replaying this same thing. And God is saying, okay, if you're, going to, if you're going to act like the other nations who are separated from me, if you're going to persist in your idolatry and in your rebellion and against going after all these other gods and all the sins I've commanded you not to do, you're going to do that, then I, then I will send you away uh, into exile among the other nations in the darkness of separation from my presence. The, so the people have lost their place as a nation in the, in, in the new creation of the, the, the promised land they were in. They've been driven into the darkness of separation from God. And that's, that's, what, that's what God's judgment ultimately is. It's to be separated from God himself. And his gracious presence to be exposed only to his wrath and none of his goodness. And that is the, the great problem of our condition. That's, that's, the, that's the true state of man. It's, it's to be separated from God's loving presence. It's, it's a spiritual death and it leads ultimately to a physical death. That's what uh, chapter 9 here, verse 2, uh, tells us as well. It says, we have been those living in the shadow of death. The shadow of of death. I saw a movie trailer recently. It just popped up on Facebook, I think, and I don't remember what the movie was at all, uh, but uh, it, all I saw was this clip of a tsunami coming crashing in. This, this family was, was playing in their swimming pool, and uh, suddenly they look up, and there's a, a big shadow cast over them as a, as a tsunami wave towering over them comes crashing 
down on them. And that's, that's a picture of, of, of a great shadow being cast over you, and that's, that's the picture here. It's, it's to be separated from God and, and be under the looming shadow of His judgment and death. It's inevitable. You, you can't avoid it. Brothers and sisters, this is the first aspect of the darkness here. It's to be separated from God's loving presence, separated from what we were made to most enjoy. Well, what's caused this separation from God? That's, that's the second aspect of the darkness we, we should remember here. It's, it's not just that this is uh, God's arbitrary judgment on Israel. No, this is something Israel's cause. They brought on themselves by their sin. This is the second aspect of the darkness. It's, it's, the, it's the result of our sin. This is clear from the wider context of the book of Isaiah. It begins with, with these words, Isaiah chapter 1. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. God's saying, my people have forsaken me. They've gone after other gods. Therefore, they are separated from me. Their sin has caused this separation. And brothers and sisters, sin always causes separation. Sin separates Adam and Eve from God in the Garden of Eden. And ever since, sin separates us from the Lord. And sin separates us from each other as well. So to sin is to, is to choose separation from God. This is, the, this is the root cause of the darkness. It's our sin. And we have to see it's not just, it's not just that, it's, that it's Adam's sin. It's my sin in Adam. Adam as my covenant head and his sin that has brought this about. It's, it's my own sin against God that brings this more and more about. Sin causes this separation and, and this judgment and the shadow of death. That's the second thing. Third, the darkness is inescapable. It's deep. Uh, the, the context here clues us into this. Uh, just before the passage we read, verse 20 of chapter 8 tells us there's no light in the people. Of Israel, So there's no light in them, and they're also living in the darkness. Well, if there's no light in them, they have no resources in themselves to shine any light on their circumstances. If, 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 if they're separated from God and lost in their sin, and they're dark internally because of that, they cannot change in any way the darkness of, of the separation of the exile of the judgment around them. They have no resources to do it. And this is what this is what sin does. It it, it plunges us down this uh, descending spiral of, of more and more sin and more and more darkness until we're uh, utterly lost in it and dead in it. The, this logic shows up in Romans one. Paul says, uh, when when people sin, uh, God gives them up to the lusts of their hearts. He he gives us over more and more to the sin, which leads to more separation. And so trying to get out on our own, trying to free ourselves from this darkness of sin and separation from God uh, just leads to more and more being stuck in it. Like spinning your tires when you're stuck in a snowbank. It just digs you in deeper. Well, that's, this is the darkness Isaiah is talking about here. This is the true state of man. This is, this is your and my condition apart from Christ. It's our sin and misery. It's our selfishness and our pride, our lust, our violence, our divorce, our sexual immorality. It's our abuse and exploitation, our arrogance and self-centeredness, hatred and rebellion against God and His law. It's our wars and our economic disasters and pandemics and riots and, and the deaths of those whom we love 
at the separation and alienation we experience from each other and from the Lord. This is the situation that we find ourselves in, the darkness of the human condition. And we're stuck in it. It's a hopeless assessment, isn't it? Uh, But it's what the Bible tells us, and it's what we see all around us, highlighted for us, maybe, by some of the events of this year. This is... This is, this, is the, this, is, this is the state we are in. But brothers and sisters, the, the glorious news of the gospel is that into this world of pitch black darkness, of sin and separation, light comes. Dawn breaks in this world for you and for me. And we see in these verses then a sudden shift in, verses, in chapter 9, 1 through, 1 through 3. It's like the clouds suddenly parting on a, on a dark day and the sunlight comes streaming through. And that's what we see, our second point, the dawning light, uh, 9, 1 through 3. A couple things about this light that we see. First, uh, it comes from God. In verses 1 through 3, Isaiah tells his audience, he's talking to the tribes of Israel, especially the, the northernmost tribes, uh, that, that through, though they've dwelt in darkness, their gloom is going to pass. The darkness is going to pass. The Lord tells them in verse 2, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Now, it's interesting, there's been no mention of repentance here. There's been no mention of the people making an effort to get back to God. It just says that God is going to shed His light on them. He's going to come and and to save them. It's not something they were looking for or working for or, or produced by their effort. It's sovereign work of God. Well, this, this light, what is it? It's, it's the opposite of the darkness. Um, the, the darkness is separation and exile. So the light is God's gracious presence. Uh, the darkness is judgment. So the light is, is blessing and salvation. It's, it's the light of the new creation. And God, God is saying to his people here, he's saying, let there be light. There's going to be a new spiritual creation in which there's fellowship with me again. This is what God is saying. And 9 verse 3 puts this in the terms of a covenant blessing for the people. The blessing of God's presence. Uh, The people are are going to be multiplied, it says here. That that language reminds us of God's promise to Abraham, where he says, I will make your descendants more numerous than the sand of the seashore and the stars of the heavens. So the people will be multiplied and blessed by God. The Gentiles, the rest of Isaiah, are going to come in, and, and that's going to increase the nations. This is the exact opposite of the exile that God is promising the people here. He's saying he's going to save them. He's going to have communion with them again. He's going to have closeness with them, no longer separated. Uh, They'll no longer be living in the shadow of death. Well, this is fulfilled, of course, in Christ. We we see this so clearly in the New Testament. You see the mention there in 9.1 of the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. These are the northern border tribes. Uh, They're the ones who are going to get hit hardest by the coming Assyrian invasion. Uh, They're the ones dwelling right there on the border under the the strongest influence of the Gentile pagan nations. Uh, But but what happens in the New Testament? That's where Christ spends so much of his ministry. And and Matthew picks up on this and and talks about how this place is is Galilee, where Christ goes, and, and he's the great light in this dark region. This is where Christ ministers most. 
Well, how, this, is, this is what's coming. The light is coming is, prof, is what's prophesied here. And then it says, it tells us, the people are going to respond to this light of salvation with a great joy. Verse 3 says, with the, with the kind of joy when there's been a great harvest or when there's a great spoil from the, the enemy, when, there, when, there's a, when there's sudden, gracious provision from God. Well, how's, how's God going to do this? That's what we see next, and that's where we're going to spend uh, the rest of our time in this text. Verses 4 through 7 tell us how God is going to bring about this great salvation. What it's, what it's going to look like for us. And this is our third point, the son of David. This text, uh, verses 4 through 7, is clearly giving us the, the reason for Israel's great joy, and it's giving us the cause of God's saving light. Uh, we see three times the word for is used in verse 4, and then verse 5, and then verse 6. The start of each of those verses says for, for, for. So we're getting the reason and the cause of, of the light that's come. So we're just going to look at each of those reasons now together. So the first reason for Israel's joy and the, the cause of the light coming. Reason number one is that God is going to judge the oppressors of his people. Verse 4 says, For you've broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. So reason number one, why the people are going to rejoice. Cause number one of their salvation, the light that's dawning, God's going to destroy their oppressors. As in the day of Midian, he says. That's a, that's a reference for us back to Gideon defeating the Midianites in Judges 7. What, what's being promised here? Well, I think a couple things as God points to Midian and as he talks about the freedom from their oppressors. As the Israelites read this in Isaiah's day or heard this in his day, they probably would have thought of, of the Assyrians, the coming Assyrian invasion. And as future generations read this, maybe they thought of Babylon or, or Persia or Greece or Rome, all these oppressors of God's people. Looking, looking for deliverance from these enemies. Uh, but, but you don't really ever see a definitive defeat of Israel's enemies in that way. After this time, they go from, from one oppressive power to another. And, and then when, when Christ comes, we see that, that the real conflict isn't with these enemies. It's, it's actually with the spiritual enemies. It's with Satan. It's, it's with sin. The conflict that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. What is being promised here is not salvation so much from the temporal enemies of God's people, but, but salvation from their spiritual oppressors, salvation from the darkness, the, the darkness of separation from God and, and our sin. That's the first thing being promised here. The oppressors will be destroyed forever. But the second thing is this. I think we get a glimpse here of how God's going to accomplish this salvation. Why, why, would, why would God choose to point us back to Midian? to Gideon's defeat of the Midianites. Well, if you remember, uh, Gideon is, is allowed only 300 men against the thousands of Midianites. And it's, it's as though God is saying, when, when, when this salvation comes, it's going to be even more lopsided uh, than that salvation was. It's going to look like one man against all the forces of darkness arrayed against him. One weak man betrayed and abandoned and crucified. That's how... The salvation is coming. It's going to look like weakness, but it's going to bring the light of God's salvation. That's the first reason. God's judgment on our oppressors. The second reason is peace. God is going to bring peace. Verse 5 says, For every warrior's sandal 
from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel for fire. So this is kind of capping off the first reason. The first reason is judgment on God's on the oppressors of, of God's people. This reason is that there's going to be there's going to be peace. The, the, the judgment on God's enemies is going to be so total and complete that that afterwards the remains of that war are going to be burned up and destroyed. So no trace of it remains. All the gear of war, the clothing of war is going to be burned up and there's going to be no trace of it left so that the peace that's coming will have no memory to spoil it. It'll be a perfect, sweet peace that no conflict can reach, a total victory. That's what's being promised here. And then we come to the final, uh, the final reason, the final cause of, of the salvation that is, is coming. is from verses 6 through 7. And the previous two, judgment on God's enemies, the peace, they're just anticipating this one. So here, is, here, here it is. The promised son of David is coming. He's going to bring a perfect reign of peace. And verse 6 describes for us the king, and then 7, his kingdom. Verse 6 begins telling us a child has been born. A child is born. In, in the Hebrew, the emphasis is on the word child there. And, and it, comes right after the, it comes right after the word for it, saying, For a child is born to us. So over against the Assyrian armies and over against the, the oppressive darkness of sin and separation from God, what is God's solution? It's a child being born. But it's not just any child. It's, it's Isaiah says, it's, it's, uh, it's going to be a son, the son par excellence. And uh, at first this might seem surprising to us that a child, a son, is going to be the solution to the, the problem of darkness and sin and separation from God. But if we think back over the, the story of the Bible, you think back to Genesis 3.15, where, where the, God says to the serpent that the seed of the woman, a child of the woman, is going to crush the serpent's head. And then throughout biblical history, you see this theme picked up on as child after child is born at a key time in Israel's history and brought up to be their savior. Think of Isaac. Think of uh, uh, Joseph's birth. Think of Moses' birth or Samson's birth, Samuel's birth, David's birth, John the Baptist's birth, and then, of course, Christ himself. Isaiah is saying the light that's coming is going to be this Messiah, the long-awaited Christ, the one we read of in John 1, the true light is coming into the world. And he says here that he's going to be born for us, for you and for me. He's, he's not just going to be born, uh, uh, he's not just, Isaiah says he's not just going to be born, but he's going to be born for you, for, for you, the sinner who dwells in darkness, for you, the guilty one, living in your sin, living far from God. He's going to, to, to save you. Well, how will, he, how will he do this for us? He'll reign as king. That's what we see here in verse 6. The government will be on his shoulder. He'll be the king. And then we see his, his fourfold name. And we get this wonderful picture here for us of who our king, Christ, will be and just how his, his, his glorious reign is going to save us from the darkness of sin and separation from God. So the first name uh, we see here is Wonderful Counselor. Some of the older versions uh, have this name split into two, Wonderful and counselor are separate names. I do think they go together. Um, not, a, not, a, not a whole lot depends on that. But uh, the other names seem to be in pairs, so it would fit this one would be in a pair as well. So wonderful counselor. What do we mean when we say something's wonderful? 
Uh, we, we might think of, uh, we use that word all the time for, for any sorts of things. Um, it was a wonderful pizza, a wonderful movie. We had a wonderful time. Uh, the, the word here is, it doesn't just mean it was really good or, or this is going to be a really good counselor. Uh, the root of the word is the same root that is used back in Exodus to describe God's acts in saving people from Egypt. Listen to Exodus 3.20. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. So a wonder is a saving act of God, something only God can do. So this child who's going to be born is going to be full of wonders, doing these awesome saving acts of God's power. But, but it all, the text is telling us more than that. It's saying his name is going to be wonderful. We get a parallel to this over in, over in Judges. The Lord appears to Samson's father. Before Samson's born, Sam, uh, his father Manoah says, uh, asks the Lord his name, and, and, and the response is, why do you ask my name, seeing that it is wonderful? So wonderful is, is a name that's only ascribed to God. And it's ascribed to God as the one who does awesome works to save his people. And so this child is the wonder. He is the saving one who comes to act in the greatest display of God's power and salvation. He's the wonderful counselor, he says. So he's the one who comes as the great act of God's salvation, and he comes as a counselor. Now, the word counselor is, is used of a king. It's one who's full of wisdom to lead and to guide his people. That all the fullness of divine wisdom and skill for leadership are found in this Christ, this king. He's the king who will never lead wrong, never make a wrong decision or a mistake of any kind. And brothers and sisters, uh, as we began talking about the state we are in uh, of darkness, separation, sin, and we come to this description of our king and the way that God is going to bring light and salvation, don't we need a king like this? One who is a wonderful counselor. We look at the history of Israel's kings, and one after the other, it seems, it's a history of failure and sin. We look at human history and, and the leadership and the kings of human history, and it looks like one after the other, failure and sin. Just leading people in further from God and further into sin, deeper into the darkness. We need this king, who is the wonderful counselor, the one who is the great savior, and the one who is God's true leader, who leads us in perfect wisdom, who counsels us in every strait or difficulty we might be in. This is, this is the one that we need. The second name describing this child for us is Mighty God. So this king is not only full of wisdom, he's also full of strength. We're getting a perfect picture here of, of the perfect king who has all, all wisdom and also all the ability to carry that wisdom out in all, his, uh, in all his strength. And again, the contrast is stunning. Isaiah's talking about a child being born, uh, but, but he's calling that child the mighty God. He's saying, on the one hand, you have weakness and dependence. On the other hand, you have omnipotence and deity. This is the great mind-blowing mystery of the Incarnation that we celebrate here at Christmas, that God Himself, the mighty God, becomes a baby in the manger. The Son of Man, the Son of God, the Son of David, and the Son of God, the Lord of hosts, the God-Man in one King for us. And this, this mighty God, that word mighty means hero, 
this hero God who comes to save his people. This is who we see so clearly in the pages of the Gospels, isn't it? As Christ comes and he he heals the sick and casts out demons and raises the dead and calms the storm by a word and and finally lays down his life in self-sacrifice and then takes up his life again and then ascends to his Father's right hand in glory. This is the mighty God. This is the hero God who's come to save us from the inescapable darkness in which we found ourselves stuck. Don't we need a hero, a God, like that, a king like that? The third name we get for this child is Everlasting Father. We don't usually think of Christ being a father. Um, uh, In the New Testament, we get the triune name of God revealed to us, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Uh, uh, the, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit revealed to us so clearly in the New Testament. They're there in shadow uh, form. In the Old Testament, you see glimpses of that triunity. Uh, but, but more often, you just get a description of who God is. And one of those descriptions, of course, is that God is like a father. Isaiah 63:16 has this. You, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer. Your name is from everlasting. Psalm 105:13 says, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those that fear him. So these texts tell the Old Testament people of God, God is like a father for you. He loves you. He protects you. He provides for you. He invests in his children. He has compassion on his children and interests. He's interested in his children. And so as, as Christ is called everlasting father, God is saying, all that, that I am, the Messiah is. That this king, this son of David who is coming to be king, this God-man, this child, is going to be all that I am. The full deity of God will dwell in this one. And he is going to be full of compassion and love for you. He's going to protect and provide you, uh, provide for you. He's going to guard you. And it's going to be from everlasting to everlasting. E.J. Young puts it this way, now and forever, he guards his people and supplies their needs. And again, don't we need a king like that? In the midst of the sin and the suffering and the separation from God, don't we need a king like that who loves us and has compassion on us and protects us and provides for us always? In a year like this, when there's been so much upheaval and uncertainty of various kinds, I think we feel this especially strongly. We need the everlasting Father, Christ himself, to be our King. That's the third name, everlasting Father. The fourth title of Christ here is Prince of Peace. He's the Prince who's born to bring about peace. First, we see that he's going to bring peace between God and man. That's, that's the fundamental divide. Between God and man, Christ will come and he's going to heal that divide. We read of this so, so well in, in Luke chapter 2. As, the, as Christ is born, the angels come, a heavenly host, an army. And what do they proclaim to the people? Peace on earth. Peace from God to man because the mediator has come. The Messiah has come. It's an announcement that God is going to make peace with man through Christ, his son. And this means more than that, that just the conflict is over. It's not just that the, the treaty's been signed and the arms have been laid down. It means that there's been a whole relationship restored again. Not only is God no longer at war with his, with his people, 
Uh, but now he is, now he is uh, restoring them perfectly to fellowship with himself. And then, then we, this peace with, with God and, and his people is so fundamental that then it, it spreads out, it affects other things. And this peace is also going to be a peace between man and man, between a brother and a sister in Christ, between uh, those who are in Christ together. And it's going to extend beyond that. We see this prophecy throughout Isaiah, the, the lion and the lamb will lie down together. Uh, in the kingdom that's coming. When, when this is all brought to perfect fulfillment and completion, when Christ returns, then this peace will be made perfect and permanent. Brothers and sisters, this is our king. These titles, think of these titles. He is the, the, uh, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. Isn't this just what we need to be our savior, to be our king? These aren't empty, abstract things. These aren't just ideas, uh, dear ones. This is who Christ is for us, for you and for me now, today. It's who he's been, it's who he will be, and it's who he is now. He is our king. Now, listen to Calvin as he applies this to us so usefully. He says this, Now, to apply this for our own instruction, whenever any distrust arises and all means of escape are taken away from us, whenever, in short, it appears to us that everything is in a ruinous condition, let us recall to our remembrance that Christ is called wonderful because he has inconceivable methods of assisting us and because his power is far beyond what we are able to conceive. When we need counsel, let us remember that he is the counselor. When we need strength, let us remember that he is mighty. And strong, when new terrors spring up suddenly every instant, and when many deaths threaten us from various quarters, let us rely on that eternity of which he is, with good reason, called the Father. And by the same comfort, let us learn to soothe all temporal distresses. When we're tossed by, by various tempests, and when Satan attempts to disturb our consciences, let us remember that Christ is the Prince of Peace, and that it is easy for him quickly to allay all our uneasy feelings. Thus will these titles confirm us more and more in the faith of Christ and fortify us against Satan and hell itself. Brothers and sisters, this is our king. Verse 7 then tells us what his kingdom will be like. And, and having seen the king, we, we, can, we can already know what this kingdom will be like. But verse 7 gives us more detail. It says, this is the fulfillment of God's promise to David. God's going to keep his word. He's going to set David's son on the throne. He will be the prince of peace. And his kingdom is going to be a perfect kingdom of wholeness between God and his people. And the peace is going to be perfect and permanent. Think of that peace that's perfect that nothing can disturb, a peace of, of wholeness and closeness, and a peace that's permanent, that nothing can end. Well, this kingdom is going to be built, the text tells us, on righteousness and justice. Isn't that what everyone is clamoring for and, and looking for? It's, to, it's to, to know righteousness and to, to know justice, to have a king that performs that for us. Well, this perfect peace, righteousness, and justice of the kingdom that's going to come is going to, to last forever and ever. It's, it's beyond anything we can know and imagine in this life, isn't it? How can we be certain this will happen? God answers that very question. He says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. God himself will do this. God's ambition for his people's good and his own glory will make sure this happens. What is there that God cannot accomplish? 
Brothers and sisters, this kingdom, this glorious king, is what Isaiah longed to see, and it's what you and I have already begun to see in Christ. We've seen him come in the fulfillment of this prophecy. We've seen him proclaiming the kingdom of peace that's coming. We've seen him overcoming the darkness of sin and separation from God by the light of his presence and by his sacrifice, dying for our sin, rising again in triumph, going to God's throne in heaven where he reigns as the king in glory. So he's reigning for us now. He's not just a past king, not just a a future king. He's a present king for us now, a wonderful counselor for us now, a mighty God, an everlasting father, a prince of peace for us now. And he promises that he will soon bring this all to completion. So the, the question, as we close, again, even as we started, are we living in the light of this king and his kingdom? Christ has come. He's shown himself. He's shown his glory. And according to all these titles we've looked at, him, and he's the only answer, the only solution that there is, the only salvation that there is to the great problem of our sin and separation from the Lord. Christ has come. This is what Christmas is all about, that the light of Christ has come, bringing God's salvation. So the question is, it's come, but has it come for me? Have I seen it? Am I trusting this Christ? Am I living in the light of this Christ? And is, is the light of his salvation what defines me and what dominates my life so that no matter what this past year held or what the next year holds, this is all defining for me. Christ, my Savior, has come and brought the light of restored fellowship with God. Brothers and sisters, let's trust and love and follow this Savior. Let's pray together.